Thanks for that introduction, Sanchai. It was a bit of a, um, a, a nice plug for Bhakti Learning at the end there, I guess. <laughs> but um, I, I think the, the path I, had, I, I chalked out for myself wasn't in education when I was younger. I joined ISKCON in, you know, in the 80s and I was at university. I was studying, I was doing a BA, but I had no idea that I'd become a teacher. Um, while I was doing that. And um, I think when I came in contact with the devotees, it wasn't really around academics or, or university. They were at the university, but it was around prasadam because Korma Prabhu, the famous international chef, he was doing cooking classes, vegetarian cooking classes on campus. And um, I took his classes and then I took his advanced course. And after the advanced course, I moved into the ashram. <laughs> So I advanced into the ashram from Korma Prabhu's cooking and um, I stayed there ever since I spent 15 years in the Brahmacharya ashram in the Melbourne temple. And um, in the early days there, the devotees were just starting a new school in, in Melbourne. It hadn't opened yet. And um, so the, the authorities directed me, asked if I'd be interested in teaching and then I started looking at Back to Godhead magazines, and and there was all these amazing articles about devotee schools, Gurukulas, and there was Burijampabu's article, and article about a school in Australia, New Govardhan, and articles. Every time I picked up a BTG, it seemed to be the front cover seemed to have, you know, really happy, smiling faces, kids on it with teachers, and um, I started to, I don't know, associate that myself with that kind of direction. And um, I agreed that, you know, let me finish my degree and I'll become a teacher. And that's really what happened. And I didn't do it. I did other services, but um, my main service has always been in the school, in the, in the classroom and startup schools. It was a startup school in Melbourne. Um, and I helped start up a school in London um, and helped start up in Houston. Um, so I've had a some experience in helping communities start schools and maintain schools. But, hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing, Prabhu. Sometimes it's amazing how life just kind of figures its way out and you can kind you can see, you know, the direction that your life moves in. It might be instances that are happening um, every now and again that just kind of propel you into the direction um, that you were always supposed to go and just like I was saying before, just in knowing you, just how passionate you are about um, about educating children, about giving that that Krishna consciousness basis as well in children as they're um, as they're going through their own lives, as, as they're developing their own purpose, um, could you know is seen so clearly in all of the initiatives that you've made, especially in your Bhakti Learning program. Um, could you please tell us a little bit more about um, Bhakti Learning? Sure. Um, Bhakti learning has, has evolved over the years. Um, we had it had previous incarnations, but previous incarnation we called it the School of Bhakti. And there's a devotee organization in the UK that have that website now, the School of Bhakti, and they, they offer lots of courses. Um, I haven't told them that that was our original URL that they 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 stole it from us. But um, looks like they're doing really well with it. It's for adult education. Um, and they have some amazing courses on there. And before before the School of Bhakti concept, you know, we had Goloka education in um, when we were studying in Houston. 
And before that, it was developing curriculum. I still have some curriculum content that I wrote by hand in um, 1985, 1986 at New, in Underground. And um, that was really the start of it. I, got, I became fascinated with um, using Prabhupada's books for teaching, for teaching children, because we have such a wealth of um, content. You know, that one of the contemporary, or not contemporary, but one of the very popular types of curriculum that you can devise is the narrative curriculum, particularly in, in language arts, but in other subjects as well. And we have, who's, we have such a, a source, a rich source of, of narratives in ISKCON that Srila Prabhupada gave us in Srimad Bhagavatam and the Puranic stories, Mahabharata in Ramayana. And um, so I've been taking these stories for years and years and making activities based on those stories. Um, and when I did my master's degree, I did it, the, the topic of the master's was um, toward Krishna consciousness in a contemporary context. And it was um, towards a thinking, developing a thinking curriculum for, uh, for ISKCON schools. And that was, I, I studied some of the um, theorists around teaching thinking skills and um, community of inquiry. So developing discussion around topics from stories, rich stories. And those stories are basically Krishna book and Srimad Bhagavatam and the Chaitanya Charitamrita. So that's been the source of inspiration, Shuddha Prabhupada and Prabhupada's amazing um, translation of these stories, how he brings them to life and um, sharing them with kids. And at the moment, what we've done in Bhakti Learning is we've simplified that text at three levels, and now we're going to be presenting it for a higher level, which is just the plain straight text from Prabhupada's books. So we um, have a really simple five and six-year-old version, which is just you know very short sentences, and then a seven and eight, which is um, a little bit longer sentences, but not compound, not complex sentences. And then the nine and tens, we developed it a bit further. And the activities we tried to differentiate, tried to variegate them a little bit, the activities. But the idea was to take the text, Prabhupada's text, and then to interact with that, to, to, to develop the uh, vocabulary based on Prabhupada's books. And then, so at the word level, and then sentence level, to understand how sentences are put together. And then at the whole text level, through discussion and, and um, interaction with the text. And we learned um, some software skills and um, trained others how to use that. So we, we've put it together in, a, in an attractive and engaging and interactive platform. And hopefully we keep developing that. That's our plan to keep developing it. And, and we've got unlimited content with Shiva Prabhupada's books and uh, unlimited ways of presenting it really. Oh. Speaking as um, as a Sunday school teacher who is utilizing the Bhakti Learning Program, we hope that you're continuing to develop it as well because it's it's so inspiring to see how the children are grasping the material and how their understanding of Krishna consciousness is evolving as they're going through um, these programs. And you spoke a little bit about inspirations and something that I'm learning as um, as an educator. I just entered into this this service because it is very much um, 
a service and I'm learning just how much goes into every single lesson, every class, every assignment, and just the immense amount of work that goes into just one hour of teaching in front of the children. Um, and one of the protections I would say against burnout that I'm seeing is taking us inspirations from fellow educators and um, from all over the world that kind of motivate um, our own aspiration as we continue with the good fight in our own circles. Um, and there are some amazing educators around the world whose impact is felt in their communities. Um, and recently there was an article on CNN that spoke about an Indian school teacher who won the UNESCO Global Teacher Award for his work promoting girls' education in rural villages of India. And the award itself was close to $1 million, but the teacher uh, vowed to give half of it to the runners up who are also providing quality programs to underserved communities. And so I was wondering, what are your thoughts on this person? And what are some of the qualities that make up an ideal teacher? Mm. Wow. Yeah, that was an amazing article. Um, and I don't, you know, I wonder if how many of us would, would give that half a million dollars away. Right. <laughs> it's a great, you know, a really testament to this that teacher's kind of ethics, I think, and um, detachment. And I think one of the qualities of a, of a teacher is that 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 brahminical quality is that they they're they're giving and, and they, they want to to give everything that they get they want to give and that's one of the qualities of a brahmana in the scriptures isn't it that the script the brahmanas receive a lot a lot um, from the kshatriyas and from from the um from from other as from other sectors of society they receive but they give they don't hoard so um they're they're very uh, generous with their possessions and with their knowledge um, and so brahmanas are always considered to be giving um, they can receive but they they give what they receive so they don't hoard it and i think that's a, a really good lesson for us um, for us all that that we've we receive so much um, in krishna consciousness and the way that, that what we receive in krishna consciousness it's worth more than a million dollars it's worth billions of dollars, you know, what, what we receive. It's worth, um, it's priceless uh, what we receive. And we should, we could really take some inspiration and give that, give it as much as we can out to people in whatever way we can and however we can, whatever capacity we have and to give and whatever capacity people have to receive it. So um, I think that's something that we could take away from that that teacher and I'm sure he's done amazing work and and like you said there are, there are always these amazing examples of teachers around around the globe who who are always thinking and focused on on, on giving and that becomes that's one of the the qualities of a devotee is is that they the devotee is selflessly serving Krishna or serving the spiritual master the mission of the spiritual master and um that selflessness is very much a quality of the teacher, mm. a good teacher. <laughs> I mean, there are teachers that come to school just to, to, to do a job and to get paid and to go home and to get the holidays. You know, everyone says teachers get great holidays. But there are other teachers that, that have the passion and the detachment and the selflessness, and they're the ones who make a difference in the lives of of everyone that they come in touch with, not just their students either, but because that's their nature, 
then the community the community benefits from that and the administration benefits from that and the authorities benefit from that everyone that we interact with in the school environment benefits from the qualities of a good teacher thank you Virgo. um that's so true you know the the selflessness that a teacher needs to have and the detachment as well as you spoke about um are qualities that are sometimes very difficult to imbibe because you're in that work and you really want to make a difference or you want to make that impact but you do have to take a step back and I think that translates to nearly every field that someone um, may be in uh, and Prabhu I was wondering then what conversely what would be the qualities of an ideal student I think one who um, could take advantage of uh, this educational opportunity that's being presented I would say an ideal student, and it's a good question because we often focus on the teacher and not so much on the student. And mm-hmm. in the, um, about, I don't know how long ago, maybe 1997, 98, we had a, an international conference arranged in Germany and devotees came from all over the world of educators, about 30 senior educators from ISKCON came to together in um, Abenteuer, a beautiful farming community in Germany. And we were, we were um, facilitated by an external facilitator. It wasn't a devotee facilitator. So he didn't know the difference between a Harita Nandamaraj and, you know, and a Bhakta Paul. He didn't know the difference. So it was quite interesting to see him interact with these senior um, powerful devotees and, and junior devotees just coming in but had educational background. So it was a, play, it was a, it was a level playing field. And um, he organized some very interesting activities during the course of the, the workshop. It was, I think it was for over about a week. And um, what we did there is we came up with this um, 12 principles of ISKCON education. And two of them were the qualities of a teacher and, and the other one was the quality of the student. Because um, one of the things that we discovered there in our discussions and in our workshops were that um, Often the focus is on the teacher, the teacher, the teacher, but we don't say much about the student, um, particularly in you know, contemporary times. That student, you know, student-centered education is all about the student, but um, not about necessarily the quality or the capacity of the student to receive and to interact with the, the learning process. So I think from the scriptures, what we learn, the basic thing we learn is tadvidi pranipatina, pariprashnena sevaya. We learn three things that the student um, brings to the learning um, environment. And one of them is that he is submissive. Pranipat. Pranipat means to, to be um, submissive and to you know, offer obeisances. Um, humility. That's one of the qualities to bring to the learning environment. And the second one is um, prashna. To, to inquire, to have an inquiring spirit. And Prabhupada talked a lot about that inquiry nature of the student and how important that is for, for learning. And it's very much part of some of the, the better or the best um, contemporary learning programs is, is the, uh, this idea of inquiry learning and community of inquiry and teaching children to ask questions and to respond and to to 
to respond in, in a coherent way, in a way that, that's rel related to the topic and to bring examples and, and analogies and metaphor and all the things that Prabhupada really uses in his, in his teachings, they're, they're the, the aspects of, of a very good, uh, of developing inquiry processes. So inquiry is important. So humility, inquiry, and then service. And I think service is, the Sevayaya is something that is, is very, um, it's integrated, it's very, it's, it's integral to the Krishna consciousness process of education. Because otherwise, you know, there's a tendency that it's just intellectual. It's a, a cognitive act. It's just a cognitive action that, that we're, we're learning to, to develop our capacity for reasoning or our capacity for analyzing or synthesizing. It's all in the head. But when we act, when we, when we, when we do service, and that, again, that's that selfless service, um, it solidifies the learning and it becomes, learning becomes um, very much a, a practical construct as well. And I don't mean construct in terms of constructivism, but I mean it's, it becomes a, a practical, um, when, oftentimes when we engage in service, we, one of the things about menial service is we, get, we free up the, the, the mind and the intelligence and we give it that space um, so we think we, we're not clogging it up, you know, they call it cognitive, um, what it, call, it, it becomes congested, you know, the mind becomes congested. But when we're serving, we're serving with the, the body, with the limbs, and, and um, we're, we're using a different aspect of our being um, to offer as a service to Krishna. And things seem, seem to fall into place then, you know, we, we, we get that clarity, um, that cognitive clarity, we get that clarity of, of thought. Um, and satisfaction and through that satisfaction we become peaceful and then when we're peaceful we can we, we have the capacity to to really um, think things through clearly and um, think think through in, in a way that is going to be um, effective I think effective and efficient so that that that's that comes from service from Sevaya and it's not just unique to is gone or to Krishna conscious education. And I know in America, um, and I followed the values education program in America for many years, um, they have a program called service learning in, in schools. And you have to get so many service learning hours up to go to, or to graduate even. Um, so it's there in the secular world, but it's um, in the service learning, when, it, when you dovetail that in Krishna consciousness, it becomes, you know, purifying to the soul. To, so it's, that that service is really important, and it's something that we shouldn't ignore. Service. So there are three qualities, and and besides those sort of standard qualities of the learner, um, I, I would say that the the qualities of you know they they have a concept called um, habits of mind, and what are those particular habits which are enable the, the student to to learn and one of the many that there's 16 habits they say but many of them are, are encapsulated in Rupa Goswami's um, six symptoms of of um, that, that, that enhance bhakti you know enthusiasm and determination and patience and and association associating with the with um, like-minded people so there those qualities are confidence and enthusiasm and determination, 
um, that become naturally are are encouraged in in, in the environment of of devotees and um, through service we, we develop that. That thank you, Prabhu. That's so true. There's there's so many qualities, but it can it can kind of not boil down, but the basis, like you were saying, is humility. Um, inquiry and service and when you were talking about service-based education it actually took me back to my high school years where we had a yes program where we had to you know get a certain we had to get like 100 hours of service uh, community service done in order to qualify for graduation but um, just with I guess the chaos of graduation with going through high school those hours don't really get counted. They're just kind of there to make the school look good or to make, you know, your college applications look nice, but they don't really have any like basis or any, um, anything to really draw that inspiration from the student. Um, and so I was wondering, um, what is the effect then of a Krishna-centered education on a student? What are some of the changes that you see happen as a person kind of shifts their viewpoint um, and goes more towards thinking um, in a universal way rather than in a very self-centered um, mm. movement, especially because we have high school students, we have middle school students who are um, kind of getting to that stage now where they're thinking about college or they're more seriously thinking about their applications and there's a lot of pressure put on them by uh, whether it's parents or whether it's the school or whether it's their own um, motivations. And oftentimes service kind of gets pushed under the rug and it's not really something that's um, done out of like a need to serve the community, but it's done out of the need to get those points and to graduate. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think the Krishna-centered education it, it, ultimately, we want to, on paper, we want to see that it's a transformative process, that, it, that we're transforming lives and they're changing from self-centred to Krishna-centred. And in Christian education, which is um, many, many similarities between what the philosophy of education in Christian school education, particularly in the American movement, um, and Krishna consciousness, but some really some really significant um, differences. And um, their two main questions are, what is the, the absolute truth? How do you define truth? Not the absolute, what, what, what is truth? And the second one is, uh, what is the nature of man? So what is the nature of the person? And the way we define the nature of truth is very similar in terms of Christian theology and Christian you know, science of philosophy of education and Krishna consciousness. So we say the ultimate truth, the benchmark is Shastra. They say scripture, the word of God is, is um, the final benchmark. And so we, we're, we're on the same page there with most of it, except the only problem is with the Christian um, philosophers is that it's their way or the highway and there's no other scripture, it's only the Bible. And interestingly, Prabhupada was very um, accommodative and inclusive here um, with scripture. And for him, scripture was Bible, Quran, it was everything. It was Bhagavatam, that was scripture. And he said that one devotee asked him, Srila Prabhupada was in, in um, Seattle, there was 
a series of long lectures in Seattle in 68. And um, there was long Q&A sessions with this. Some of the lectures went for an hour and a half, and it was quite long for, for usually for, for that for Prabhupada. And the Q&A was really interesting and interactive and, and interesting questions coming up. And one, one girl asked, Prabhupada, is, um, is there a concept of a Joan of Arc in the, um, in, in the, in the Bhagavatam? Um, and Prabhupada sort of, he, she asked the question again, and he said, why, why are you trying to take Joan of Arc out of the Bhagavatam? She's already in the Bhagavatam. And she said, sorry, you know, excuse me, Prabhupada, Joan of Arc's not in Bhagavatam. And uh, Prabhupada said that, that she's a devotee um, and she's God, her, her, her life is centered around God. And so that she's, she's an embodiment, she's a, a Bhagavat, the person Bhagavat. Um, so Prabhupada was very inclusive in that way, that it wasn't just the Bhagavatam and no other way. But unfortunately, with that, some of our Christian friends, um, they quote John, you know, and it's... Um, there's no, there's only one way to the truth, and that shall be through 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 Jesus. There's no other way. So this is where we the, the the scriptures. I said that's what we we agree on the most, but they're a little bit limited in what they define scripture as. And the second one is the absolute. What, what is the nature of man? And the nature of man. They define man, the, the person, the individual, as um, sinful, as a um, what do they say, as fallen and as somebody who's who needs redemption and very much i mean very much in krishna consciousness from the chaitanya charitamrita and from Srimad bhagavatam the nature that we have is that the soul is eternal and eternally the soul is good not bad so that's a really big difference if you look at a child as a bad thing in your classroom you've got these 30 bad things in your classroom <laughs> And you've got to, they've, they've got to get redemption, and I'm going to redeem these souls. It's a different way of looking at it rather than seeing them as, as 30 pure spirit souls in your classroom that are covered temporary, you know, covered over temporarily, and we're just uncovering them through engaging them in the process. And they then can become very transformative in, in a way that's not um, forced upon them, but in a way that's, that really does come from within. And that is the that the, the philosophy of Lord Chaitanya is that Krishna consciousness is it's already there. It's not something that we impose. It's already inside and it's something that comes from, from within inside. So I think um, that's that's the main difference that we have. And the Krishna centeredness, um, Prabhupada captures it really nicely in the um, Bhagavad Gita. In, this, in the fifth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, there's a beautiful verse in, uh, that says that, you know, when, when, when one sees everything with the, the light of knowledge, um, then he sees everything clearly like the sun lights up everything in the daytime. That's 5, 5.16 in the Gita. And in the purport, Prabhupada concludes his purport with one line, and he says that, that um, identity with individuality in spiritual life is real knowledge. And that is really Krishna conscious centered education. A Krishna centered education is understanding identity and then grasping and celebrating that individuality that we have unlimited amounts of ways to express our identity as a servant of Krishna. And we can do that through music and through the arts and through, through literature and through service and through unlimited ways. And Prabhupada really, um, 
helps us to understand that and see that through this one sentence, that identity with individuality, and that that is really a comprehensive aphorism that we have, identity with individuality and spiritual life. And that, that makes for um, real knowledge, real, real spiritual knowledge is, is achieved through understanding who we are, who am I, and then um, accessing our individual nature and using that nature for purifying the soul and the soul becoming um, enlivened and inspired yeah, in Krishna consciousness. Thank you for saying that. Um, can you say that uh, the aphorism one more time, Prabhu? Yeah, sure. And and everybody should learn this um, this one because it's in five sixteen last line identity with individuality and spiritual life. So it's identity with individuality. Um, and that's one of, the one of the affirmations that we have in, in Krishna consciousness, those who do um, deity worship, before they go onto the altar, they recite this affirmation that I am an eternal servant of Krishna, an infinitesimal spiritual being, completely apart from the gross and the subtle body. Uh, it's, it goes on. It's a very beautiful um, affirmation that we, the, the Acharyas have given us, that every day we identify that I'm an eternal servant of Krishna, completely apart from the gross and the subtle body, that I'm a spirit soul. And that was, that's, the, that's the original teaching, the ultimate teaching that, hey, I'm a spirit soul. My identity is spiritual. And as a spirit soul, this is what I need to do, this is to, to, to be happy and to be, to be fulfilled as an individual. Um, I'm going to engage in these activities that are consistent with my identity. And identity is a big study, you know, from the early years, the, all the curriculum around early years, you know, the five, four to five-year curriculums in the world, one of the first points in the UK, in America, Australia, New Zealand, one of the first objectives is identity for, for children, to give them an identity. Who, who are they? Who are these young children that, that are in our classrooms? Um, and then that develops through the years. And when we get to our teen years and, and, and later through our teen years, identity becomes um, very prominent again and, and very important for, for the individuals to feel comfortable with their identity. And sometimes as a devotee child, we've, we've experienced many times that they feel um, uncomfortable with the identity of being a devotee or they feel like they have multiple identities that they can't reconcile or that they can't um, that they don't feel like in sync with. Mm. Um, and one of our, the tasks of a, of a teacher and a, and a system, an education system, is to help individuals understand that the real identity is spiritual and that these other identities are temporary coverings of the spiritual identity. And that the, they're, they're real, they're real. Like we have a, a material body as a male or as a female or, um, as an American or as an Indian or as an Australian, they're, they're identities that they're not false identities, so to speak, like, but they're in the um, kind of ont in the spiritual and existential reality, they're, they're temporary. They're real, but temporary, Prabhupada would say. Um, and so we understanding our spiritual identity, we can use these other identities. Um, we can, we can, use them as part of our purification. And that's what, that's what we do. That's the goal of that, is to understand that we have one real identity and these other identities that we have to deal with 
um, are temporary, but we, we grasp them and we deal with them and we use them for our spiritual benefit and for the benefit of others. So um, multiple identity is not a, it's not a bad thing. Some people think, oh, I've got multiple identities. I'm going to have a, a psychosis around this, so, you know, a, a, an identity crisis. Uh, but understanding that multiple, multiple identities is just natural. It's a natural thing. A father has an identity as a husband, as a father, as a, in the workplace, he has another identity. With his friends, he has another identity. So we, are, we have multiple identities. Um, and it's just um, when, we're, when we're peaceful, when we're at home with our original identity, the other identities um, become very natural and something that we don't have to wrestle with. Thank you. Thank you for, for saying for saying that, especially about um, having that multiple identities, because as someone uh, who, you know, grows up in Krishna consciousness, or even as a child entering into Krishna consciousness, there is always a, a face that you put in school versus the face that you put in the temple. And it's very hard to mesh those two. But um, having that that security and understanding that, you know, we are servants of Krishna and we can utilize every single aspect of our lives in service is a very um, powerful and very grounding understanding. Mm. Um, and just going off of what you were saying, Prabhu, there's also, when we're talking about identity, the, the concept of nurture versus nature comes up. Um, how much of it is really coming from the student and how much of it is coming from the parents' guidance or how much is coming from the, the school's guidance or the teacher's guidance. And children in general, they have an innate tendency. They have their own um, aspects of life, aspects of Krishna consciousness that they're drawn towards. Um, so how do we nurture a child's innate nature and um, kind of, bring them into their service and know what that is so that we have that, that, um, that understanding that can help guide them, but we're not taking control over a student's life or in a parent's case, a child's life or, you know, like where it's just nurturing uh, mm. gently. Mm. Yeah, nice one. I think um, Prabhupada's the ultimate exemplar for so many things, but for definitely for this area um, of nurturing and um, the nature of his disciples. And um, even in the Bhagavatam, he says in, in quite a few places in the Bhagavatam that that's the duty of the spiritual master is to identify the nature of the disciple and then to guide them and direct them uh, accordingly and that they'll use that nature for their self-purification um, um, the svabhav, the, the, the natural tendencies, psychological tendencies of the, of the disciple. And Prabhupada elaborates um, in one purport in the fourth canto that on this point of, of identifying and directing the individual disciple's nature um, for their purification, he says if somebody is, is expert, if somebody has a tendency for art, then they can do art for Krishna. If somebody has a tendency for music, then they can do kirtan for Krishna. And, and he gives a, like a three or four examples of how he could do that. And Prabhupada did that. And if you hear it, sometimes you can hear, um, um, uh, what's his name? one of the very senior devotees, he's been, there's been a few really interesting um, seminars 
by him and he was, um, oh, it just slips my mind. Anyway, he talks about the first ever marathon in Iskon and it, it wasn't a book marathon. It was um, the first, he said the first marathon in Iskon was uh, purchasing a property for the first, uh, the first property in Iskon in North America. Um, and that the devotees were having this transcendental competition to do that. So whoever achieved, whoever purchased the first property, that would, that would be the, the housing, that's where ISKCON Press would go. And so everybody wanted ISKCON Press in their, in their temple. So Prabhupada would come there and write books and the Prabhupada would be in their temple. So that went on for 18 months, apparently, that, that, um, that Rameshra Prabhupada, Rameshra Prabhupada. And uh, it's a it's a beautiful uh, presentation, and he talks. But he also has a seminar on on the artists, and he talks about the Iskon artists and how they. He talks about the the marathon for the Chaitanya Charitamrita, and how the artwork was put together for that, and the and the, the um, cooperation of the devotees over that period of time, record breaking period of time that they produced those seventeen volumes of books, and there he says that whoever had a slight inclination for art, they were directed into the art department and somebody heard a, somebody was um, had a, an inclination toward writing or editing, they were in the editing department. There are, and uh, whatever whatever devotees and Prabhupada would direct them and some devotees um, were sent, Prabhupada sent them off to learn book binding and to learn different aspects of, of publication, book publication. And they went and they, they went to to these bookbinders in New York and they became apprentices and they learned the art of bookbinding. They learned the art of, of you know, setting up the sheets and, and all the, the technicalities of it, um, lettering and all that sort of amazing details. They learned that and they brought it back into ISKCON. So it's um, unlimited ways that we can um, in nurture the nature of devotees. And um, I think... Prabhupada is famous for fanning the spark, just for seeing that little spark of, of intuition or that little spark of inclination or tendency and then fanning that into an inferno and then the devotees is going with that and that becomes their life mission um, because Prabhupada saw that in them. And, and oftentimes when a teacher sees something in a student, the student doesn't see that student won't be aware of that even because the student's directing their attention somewhere else or they're covered over or whatever it is. But the teacher or a parent or someone else can see that in them. And then they think, oh, maybe. And that that, that becomes a whole shift, um, paradigm shift for, for the individual that, oh, perhaps I can do this. Perhaps I can be an artist or perhaps I can do kirtan or perhaps I, I can be a teacher or I can do whatever it is because someone else saw that in you and fanned that that um, that tendency or that inclination in the first place. Um, so I think that fanning there's a, there's a process or there's a um, a technique that teachers use in classrooms called the nurtured heart approach. I'm not sure if you've heard of that, but um, a devotee in New Zealand who worked with me in the New Zealand school for many years, a singer devotee, um, she Vimala Mataji. She had a very difficult class one year and um, many years ago, and this was like 2000, I think, um, 2000, 2001, she had a very difficult class and she didn't know what to do with this, particularly this one child. So she did all this research and she came up with this nurtured heart approach. And the nurtured heart approach is that you, instead of 
a child who's difficult and is always pulling the hair of the child in front of them and pinching them and poking their tongue out and doing all these nasty things in the classroom, instead of always jumping on them and saying, you know, don't poke your tongue, don't pinch, don't don't punch, don't do this, all the negative things, it's um, I'd, waiting to capture capture them doing something positive, something that's that, that you, you know, a desired behaviour that you want to um, encourage in the classroom. So then you do that. And you develop, help them to develop a positive, what they call a, um, um, a positive uh, identity around themselves rather than negative one. So that they, they start to identify themselves with somebody who can sit straight or somebody who can hold, you know, control their senses or somebody who can control the pinching tick tendency, whatever it is. And so that you help them to develop a portfolio. That's what they use. A portfolio, a positive portfolio, a portfolio of positive actions rather than negative ones. So that's really the nurtured heart approach in, in a nutshell. And, and that's how we want to, we want to nurture um, the, the goodness in the children. And going back to that Christian model is that if, if we see them as bad, if we see them as sin, sinners and that, that require redemption, it's very hard to to develop that kind of nurturing, um, you know, a, a nurturing kind of open approach to nurturing the goodness that's there in the heart, and helping them to develop that 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 portfolio of of identifying themselves as as somebody who who can can succeed, somebody who can do things the right way, somebody who can make a contribution. That nurtured heart um, approach reminds me of something that one of um, my mentors in, in my school told me once. He said, you know, a student doesn't care to learn until they learn you care. Yeah. And so there's, there's so much truth and so much power to, you know, positive narration, positive affirmations in the classroom. And even just in a group of children, just encouraging their, their innate goodness, like you were saying, there's so much, so much power to that um, and just developing their their natures and developing their own personalities and telling them it's okay to be who you are yeah. and there is power in who you are and um, and developing that as they as they grow older and you know Prabhu as you were speaking I was wondering um, what is um, like how does Krishna consciousness translate to the modern education system Right, because in the modern education system, it's all about competition. It's about nurturing that survival instinct in the student and making sure that they're the best of the best and to uh, keep them motivated and keep them going through competition rather than encouraging them to um, see the goodness in everybody and see the goodness in themselves and having that internal intrinsic motivation instead of just having that external force pushing them. Um, and so how do you see Krishna consciousness translate into the modern education system and in students who are not in Krishna conscious schools? How can they bring about that change in themselves and how can parents encourage um, this change? And I, I'm adding on to it. I apologize. It's just, just a question getting me really um, excited uh, because it, it's so real. Like we see this all the time in our schools where um, students get burnt out. And they're only like 10, 12 years old. So how do we how do we keep that 
that motivation, especially in our Christian conscious children who have that, um, who have that knowledge and who are gaining that knowledge on who they are. Mm. I'm glad you brought the parents into it because, um, I mean, even though it was an add-on, but the parents are they're the first teachers of the children. And um, the parents have a lot to to contribute and a lot to answer for sometimes for for the pressure and undue pressure on students um, at an early age. Like you said, a 10-year-old child who's burnt out. And um, I spent quite a bit of time in India um, working in in with schools um, and with parents and um, also with Goloka. Um, and one of the things that I experienced there working in, in Mumbai um, and other places as well, Mayapur even, was that um, young children from the age of, you know, they have a thing called um, junior kg, junior kg, uh, junior kindergarten and senior kindergarten. And then, you you know, you graduate to kindergarten and there's a have graduation, you know, so the little three and a half year old kid graduates to senior KG with, with a whole thing, you know, with the hat and the, the, the gown, the scholar's gown, and, and they, they graduate them. And they have a, a grueling, some of the schools have a really grueling um, induction program or a, a meeting where the child has to pass these, has to meet with the, like the board of, you know, the three and a half, four year old child goes in front of six adults that they've never seen before. And it's the senior teacher, or, you know, the principal of the school, the chairman of the board or trustees of the school, of the, you know, the school and other, you know, four other people, curriculum advisor and different people like this. And they ask the four year old child these questions, you know, what's your name? And how do you spell your name? And what, what's your mother's phone number? And ask these ridiculous questions, you know, to, you know, it's like some kind of a crazy um, in introduction to their system or, or entrance examination at the age of three and a half or four. <laughs> can you believe it? Um, and then it goes on. It gets it gets worse. So you can you can imagine by the time they're ten that they've just about had enough of this. You know, and what to speak of when they they they're older and they graduate, they get into university, and the pressure's really on, and it's particularly in an Indian university to get in there in the first place. IIT or one of these universities. So incredible amount of pressure. Um, and that pressure is not always healthy. Some pressure is good. Like sometimes when Indians come from India to Australia, they say, you know, your education system is just like going nowhere. It's just so relaxed. You know, you, you know, there's no pressure at all. It's like a walk in the park for them. So some pressure should be there, um, but not that in intense competitive pressure. And um, some of the best athletes in the world and the, the, the performing you know artists in the world they don't always they don't compete against um, other people in, in their um, field other peers they compete against them, themselves and they have a thing called a, um, a, a PB their personal best I remember I went to school with a, a, a champion the, um, the one who does the really long races the the um, marathon runner and uh, his name was Di Costello. He won three, I think he won three gold medals or something at the Olympics. And um, he, was a, he wasn't such a, a star at school in, in the sports, but he always trained against himself. He, he would train to, and he would time himself, how long it took him to do 800 metres, to do 1,600. And um, he would time himself and do a PB, 
Every day he wanted to do a personal best. Every day he wanted to better himself. Um, and he was competing kind of against himself and not other people. Where other other runners were trying to compete, I want to beat his time. I'm going to get a better time than than she did like this. But he was doing a PB. So that's something that we can um, take home. I think is that that we it's not all about competing against everyone else, and it's all right to to not be the best of the best of the best, um, but to do the best that we can. Um, and that is, that is our that can be a great contribution too. That we be, that we do the best that we can, and that's our that's our particular offering. Um, how to do, you know, Krishna consciousness? How does that translate into the modern competitive sphere? We also have competitive systems. We have we we have competition, but the um and there was competition amongst the gopis, and there's competition amongst devotees in all levels, and there's competition in, in marathons, book marathons. There's competitions. We have competitions. But we want to see the other people um, succeed as well, like that teacher who gave half of his um, prize money to the runner-ups. We want to see that the people who are with us are also succeeding, and then it's not just me and I'm on the top of the pile and everybody else is, you know, I've, I've, I've won and I, I did it, you know, and I'm the rugged individual who's on the top of the pile. But we want to um, compete in a healthy way. So there's a concept uh, in education. There's a concept of um, competitive. Uh, what is it? Friendly. Um, a critique. A, a person who's critiquing you, giving you um, feedback, but who's like doing it in a constructive way, and not a way that's going to pull you down and 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 minimize you and make you feel like inadequate. But somebody who gives you critique, who critiques you. In a way that that is um, encouraging and supporting, and I think that that's the goal of our system in education, and for parents to see that as well, that that we don't have to be competing against the Joneses all the time. We don't have to be competing against our next door neighbours, but we have to do the best that we can with what we've got, and that's that's our allotment. That's what Krishna's given us, and. Um, Surely Krishna will accept that. He's Bhavagrahi Janadana. He's he's accepting, he's extracting the the essence of our of our offering of our love um, and not not of our expertise. Krishna's the most expert in everything. Mm. Um, but he's he's accepting what we can give in our all honesty. Like the Brahman who couldn't read the Bhagavad Gita and he was crying, and Lord Chaitanya accepted him as the greatest exalted devotee not because he was a great pundit um, and, you know, he knew Nyaya and, and Vyakaran, but he, because he had the, the, the sentiment of a devotee. Mm. I think that's really important, but it's a huge topic and uh, mm. it's something that, you know, we could probably go on and, and write theses about that, the Krishna consciousness and competition and Krishna, how Krishna consciousness relates to contemporary education and contemporary education theory because contemporary education theory is is pretty much dominated by um, humanist theory and humanist theory is a displacement of god that god doesn't exist now and that now the the divine nature and in the individual is going to be realized through um, human humanity we're going to realize that without god we don't want to have a God in the picture. We're going to remove God from the picture. So that's the predominating um, theory, uh, philosophy. There's a predominating philosophy in most of contemporary educational um, thinking. 
And then under, underneath that, we have different theories. And that's another topic for another day. But those theories, um, they're pretty much, you could, you could put them into three different baskets. One of them is a behaviorist theory, and one of them is a cognitive theory, and one of them is a constructivist theory. And they argue that, no, it's just, you just have to be, you, you have to have curriculum and you have to have a, um, teaching and delivery and learning according to a behaviorist model. No, you have to have it according to a constructivist model. And as devotees, we can take all of the models. It's a real lachintya beta, beta tattva. It's a, it's, we can accommodate each theory and, and learning model within a Krishna conscious philosophy of education. And I, I think that's a, the power of Krishna consciousness is that, that we're not just limited to one particular theory within this humanist um, philosophy of education, but we can take learning theories and utilize them um, for for what they're for, for when we need them for time, place, and circumstance, and that we're not barred from one if we if we accept one that we can't do the, we can't do anything from the other. And that's a real limitation in contemporary education. Thank you, Guru. Thank you for so succinctly just like like taking care of all of the aspects of um, what it means to have a um, non secular outlook in secular education and how Krishna consciousness really does translate and how it helps encourage the student into bringing about a more holistic approach to how they view education, how they view their own progress, as well as the progress of their classmates. Um, thank you so much for, for sharing, um, sharing so much with us today. Uh, before we conclude, Prabhu, uh, would it be okay if we take a couple of questions from our audience here? Yeah, most definitely. Fire away. <laughs> if anybody would like to ask any questions, please feel free to um, come off of uh, mute. I believe we have time for uh, about two questions. Is that right, Winston? Yeah, I think that works. Okay. We have time for about two questions. So if anybody would like to, to ask anything, please feel free to come off mute. I have a question. Hare Krishna Prabhu. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you so much for blessing us with your words. Um, what would you recognize as your biggest hurdle? What has been the most challenging as an educator? Ooh, um, a good question. I think that it's not money. Um, most people would think, oh, if I had money, I would just be a successful <laughs> educator. I would have had the best school. But it's not, it's not money. It's probably our own kind of a personal thing, like personal blockage or a personal um, something that says, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough for this or I, I'm not up for this. And um, that kind of lack of, of, um, of confidence or that, that Krishna will give me what I need to do this properly and to be successful in this. And um, I think that that's probably been that that's held me back before. Um, and I'm dealing with that more and more as I progress. But yeah, I think that personal, that, that feeling of um, individually not being, not feeling adequate enough to do it. Thank you so much. You're welcome.
Thank you for that. That actually makes me feel a little bit better as well. Um, I'm just starting out my journey. You're like light years ahead of me. But um, just knowing that, you know, just thank you for being vulnerable and being very real with your answer, because that honestly helps somebody who's coming into education um, just know that it's okay to give yourself grace and Mm -hmm. to just keep pushing forward. Sure. That's the reality, isn't it? (laughs) Does anybody have um, any other questions for Prabhu? I have a question. Um, When I was in school, I learned most from discussions, not from reading. So I had a bad habit where I wouldn't, I would get what's called cliff notes, which are sort of summaries of books yeah. and things like that. And even as a devotee, I've continued, I don't read enough. And it's, it's sort of frustrating. It's hard to change one's nature or habits. Can you comment on that? How to change habits um, and develop better reading habits, is it Savamamapur? Yes. Hi, Bob. So um, nice to see you here. Um, yeah. I think one of, one of the interesting things about changing habits is, is experience, that, that we, it's really difficult. You know, as we know, we, the, the habits that we develop, we develop them over a long period of time. And um, they, they came, they're, they're formed and they, they become part of our, of our nature, of our personality. And um, to change that requires really a focus and um, a determined effort to change that. And I've done some work with um, addicts, drug addicts over the last couple of years, and um, changing their habits is, is not a, it's not something that, that comes just by telling them, you know, you should stop using drugs because um, that's not going to work. They have to have an experience they have to experience the the not using part of it, um, to, and that has to be something that that is higher than that they experience when they are high on the drugs. So that's the param drishtva. So I think experience is a really important part of of habit changing, it, having that a, con, a consistent experience of feeling that hey I can do something different than I did yesterday or the day before, and feel just as good and maybe better. And then if I do a bit more the next day, so it's um, making incremental um, progress and not expecting to to be like a Rhodes Scholar overnight and just absorbing myself in, you know, reading, speed reading a thousand pages a night, but um, adding, you know, one page, adding one sloka, adding one verse a day, um, and then seeing over a period of time hey, you know, I just started adding one verse and now I'm doing 20 verses. Um, but it's like I, I heard once some, someone put it like this one time for changing habits was, you know, you need to get fit, you know, you need to get fit, but you're doing all the wrong things. You, you're, just, you're eating the wrong things, you're sleeping at the wrong time, you, you're going to the wrong places and you're not getting fit. So you, you make a determined vow, like a New Year's vow resolution that I'm going to get fit and I'm going to do the right things. And the best, the best thing to do is to get down on the, if you want to get fit, to get down on the ground and start doing a push-up. And you get down and say, I'll just do one push-up today. And that's going to be my start, my road to recovery, one push-up. And when you get down there, 
you do one push up and say, well, what the heck, you know, I'm down here already. Why don't I do two? And before you know it, you've done five push ups. And then the next day, you get down there the same. So it's, it's a, just a setting ourselves goals that are, that are achievable, you know, like smart goals, something that we can achieve and building on that. I've had a really good experience of that recently because I had a, um, a nasty fall about three months ago and um, I fractured my shoulder in three places and I got 10, 10 pins in my shoulder keeping it together here. And um, I couldn't move my arm out like this. This is my good arm. I couldn't move it out like this um, 10 degrees. And every day for three months, I just did the same exercise on this shoulder. And now I can move it out like you know, almost 90 degrees. I can move my arm. And three months ago, I couldn't move it, you know, not even 10 degrees. And that came from just every day, one increment, one degree a day pretty much. So changing habits is... Um, they say you can change your habits in, you know, what, three weeks or something, but it's a long period, it takes a long period of time and it, it means that you have to be, um, you know, you have to have a real a goal for changing. I want to change because I want to be, you know, I want to read more consistently or I want to be a better person or I want to encourage others to do that so I can be an example. We have to have some kind of goal and then experience the benefit of that change. You know, that's the real emotional connect um that does it and it's not intellectual you can't just you can't change through from the cognitive process to say i'm going to change because it's going to give me this 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 and this these are the results it, that doesn't fly with the with the psychology without psychologies <laughs> psychology change means experience and to connect that's the path emotional level thank you Bruno. You're welcome, Salvador. Thank you. As you were um, speaking, I was thinking about this video that somebody had sent me um, a week, two weeks ago, something like that. It was a young child in a um, in a classroom somewhere in Asia, and all the other students are like very studious. They're like flipping the pages, they're reading, and this one child has his book out, and instead of reading, he's just trying to like absorb the knowledge through osmosis he's just taking it and putting it over his head like it's just going to magically um come through and so as you're talking about just practice you know just that everyday application i was just thinking about that child and um, the journey he's going to have to go through as he uh, as he learns that 